listening to Finding Your Genius Zone with Dirk Nouvelle. It's not just a job. It's not just a paycheck. Or at least it doesn't have to be. With the help of experts across industries, Dirk helps you find your passion and career, as well as exposing the unknown parts of every vocation. Let's go deep. Let's find your genius zone right now. Here's Dirk Nivelle. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. This is Dirk Nivelle, and on with me is Paul Schneiderman. Uh, welcome, Paul. Thank you, Dirk, for having me on. And congratulations on your new podcast. Thanks, my friend. Um, real quick, uh, you know, college is, uh, you know, it's a great opportunity. Paul and I met back at the University of Washington. And although Paul and I haven't hung out a lot in recent years, with social media, you get the advantage of following people and seeing how they're going and they're doing in their career. And Paul's a guy that I know is really successful uh, as an attorney. And he's also carved out kind of a really cool, uh, I don't want to call it a hobby, but maybe a second love um, having to do with podcasting. And some of the folks he's uh, been interviewing over the, the years are pretty impressive uh, athletes that are real recognizable to this community. But this podcast, I know you're tuning in. We're going to first kind of touch on law and and the different routes and the one Paul is involved with. And we'll get into the weeds on um, kind of that lifestyle. And then we'll also touch on the whole podcasting um, uh, gig that Paul is involved with. But I will stop rambling and kind of throw it back to Paul. And Paul, maybe in your own words, uh, you can talk a little bit about how long you've been in law, what kind of law you specialize in. Um, and then just maybe a little about your career, like have you bounced around uh, private practice, things like that? Well, Dirk, again, uh, I'm honored and humbled to be on your podcast and, and uh, welcome to the, to the podcast family. And it's, it's, uh, it, it's uh, nice to be with you and I'll continue to follow your podcast as well now that I'm, now that I'm aware of it. Uh, I grew up in Seattle. I graduated from Seattle Law School back in 97 and I went on my own as a lawyer. I went solo back in 2000. I was still in my 20s when I decided to become a solo lawyer. And there are all sorts of reasons I decided to do that. And um, so I've been a solo lawyer now for over 23 years. Most of my work is most is primarily in the area of plaintiff's personal injury, where I represent injured people with claims. I handle a few other, I handle a few other cases, an occasional business litigation case. Occasionally, I, I'll hit on a criminal law case, but probably 90% of my work these days is, is in the personal injury torts area, we call it. So you, okay, so 97 is when you got out of law school, is that right? That's correct, that's correct. And you're, you're below me, so I got out in 92 at UW, were you 93? That's correct, that's correct. And then you jumped right into law school? Pretty much. I, I took a year off. I actually had an interesting experience before I started law school. I worked at Nordstrom's for a couple months. And that um, I learned, I actually learned a lot doing that. And so, but I took the LSAT uh, the fall after I graduated and um, didn't probably have the most productive year before I started law school, but I did jump in the summer of 94 at Seattle Law School. Cool. And, um, you know, I, I was not top of my class or anything, um, but I think I got a good legal education there. And, um, yeah, just just you you kind of get out of law school and you're sort of off of the races. You, you everyone everyone goes through law school and takes the bar together and have, takes similar courses in law school. But once you're done, I mean, again, you are really thrown out there, and you got to kind of try to figure it out one way or another. So uh, real quick, that's interesting. I my first job, real job, was at Nordstrom's. I was 14, and they dressed me up as a bell bellman or whatever, and I had to open up doors. Uh, for the sales and then I eventually got in the stock and then I would do outside sales during like the Christmas holiday sales so I was there probably a good 15 years off and on but I did learn a lot as well I mean Nordstrom I don't know were you in Seattle or Bellevue or which I was one? at the Bellevue Square shop for, for not a very short time I probably was not the best salesman in the world my ADD side would come out a bit I mean I was I was good if I had time to, to spend with an individual customer but it was kind of overwhelming to me to like have 20 people want help right away. I was, well, I was kind of like, oh, you know, it got a little, but I, but I did learn a lot but doing that before I started law school. So. I remember my first year, I think it was sportswear or furnishings and I was sales and I was young and I couldn't figure out the register. And this guy was, he knew I was kind of wigging out and he's like, hey, listen, take a breath. I go, this is just clothes. It's not a big deal. It's not 
serious life, serious stuff. And I always remember that. Cause like I was, I, you know, I wanted to be really good at it, but um, anyways, Nordstrom's was a good uh, kickoff for me as well. So getting back to law, you know, we talked a little bit about before we uh, started this podcast is, you know, a lot of my friends got into law. Was that something like, what was the re was that a voice in your head? Like, I want to be a lawyer. Was it uh, parental stuff? What was, I mean, you didn't waste any time and you jumped right into it. What, what was the, what was behind that? You know, Dirk, I'll tell you what, growing up, gr growing up in Northeast, so my late dad was an attorney and my late grandpa on my mom's side was an attorney. Uh, I had an, an uncle was an attorney, an aunt was an attorney. So I, I grew up with the law and I grew up with hearing about legal cases, hearing about legal issues. And so I, I guess it's sort of a genetic thing, but I always found the law interesting because as we know in today, so many current events have something to do with the law. And so that part of it has always interests me. Say, even if I don't practice, say, an environmental law, I can read about an environmental issue and kind of pick up on some legalities, even if it's not my area of law. So I always kind of had a natural fascination with, with the law and the advocacy part of it and some of the, the details of it. Um, but I want to share some with you, Dirk. I was not the best student growing up. Um, I got diagnosed with ADD and dyslexia when I was very young. And so I had to work pretty hard in school to um, to be able to get through college and get through law school. And so even though I grew up the, the child of an attorney and the grandson of an attorney, um, the school academic part of it wasn't always easy for me growing up. I can relate. Um, yeah, I, I, that's interesting. I think that's a big issue right now. So again, people are tuning in because they want to know a little bit about the world of law. But I just have to ask, you're a third generation law person, legal person. I don't know what the right way to phrase that is. Did you feel pressure? Like, did you ever have interest to do something else? Or was it a desire to get into this field? Or did you did you feel like, gosh, I have to be because my grandma, grandparents and or my grandpa and my dad, et cetera, like I can't go a different route. That's a, that jerk. That's an excellent question. And it was really something I wanted to do. And it was something that it was sort of a self-competition thing. That I want to get through law school. I want to do this. And um I never got pressure. Uh, my father died when my sister and I were teenagers. So I never had deep conversations with him about the idea of going to law school. But he was never like, he never pushed it growing up. I remember one time my dad said, we need more scientists than lawyers. Um, so my, and my grandfather, who we had a great tie, he died back in 2003. He never pushed me going to law school. So I never got pushed by anybody. If anything, I probably had more people trying to dissuade me from going. Um, yeah, what, that's. Yeah, I'm sorry to cut so, you off. That's interesting because I was, um, again, I didn't mean to cut you off, but I no, was going to no, no, no. I think part of this podcast is is really getting into the heads of people that don't have life wisdom. Like you and I, we have some years behind us. And so I didn't know if you had any gold or wisdom you wanted to throw at people that may be in a situation where they feel the pressure to follow suit. Uh, and they're like, maybe their heart is somewhere else. But it sounds like you are more than willing yeah, and here's one more thing I want to throw in here. You'll find this interesting. My late aunt, her name was Debbie Aaron, and she sadly passed at age 52 in 2002. And Debbie was a real pioneer as a woman lawyer. She was one, I think she was the first woman associate at a prominent Seattle firm, Williams Castor Gibbs. Anyhow, Debbie practiced law for over a decade. She ended up going into what we can call the lawyers in transition movement. She became a nationally known counselor for helping lawyers who are considering career transitions. So I actually grew up with an aunt who had, as you can tell, a somewhat ambivalent view about the practice of law uh, because she specialized in helping lawyers who wanted to get out or find uh, different careers. Or, or she also would help lawyers find career choices from within. So when I would tell people I'm Debbie Aaron's nephew, people would go, and you went to law school? You're Debbie Aaron's nephew? So, so, um, but your question made me think, because if anything was probably more, a little more cynicism about going to law school and do within you, some family circles. Do you remember anything she told you that stuck out? Well, a couple things. And, and, and she, she was a, she was a very bright woman, went to UW and UCLA law school. Very, very smart. She, she told me that you're going to see the practice of law involves a lot of administrative aspects. You know, you, you go through law school and you think you're going to be arguing Supreme Court cases. You're going to be getting these most fascinating kind of 
cases. You can get some of those types of things, but it really is a lot of just kind of common sense, handling your trust account, uh, making sure your bills get paid, making sure you're following the legal ethics rules, making sure you're calling the clients to make sure the ship doesn't sink, you know, things like that. So that's something she shared with me, Dirk, that you're going to find a lot of practice law is administrative stuff. And that's very true. Well, this is perfect because uh, I, I want to get into the weeds um, about you know, people watching uh, TV and all these law shows and they're like, oh man, this is funny or this is cool, this is sexy, this is exciting. Uh, let's get into the real world of law. And, and I don't know if that would change, the answer would change based off the type of law you're involved with. So let's, I guess for now, focus on your uh, specific type of law. Yeah, yeah, like I said, most of my work is on the plainest personal injury side. And what that sort of means in plain English is I represent people who have an injury claim. Many of these cases get resolved before a lawsuit's ever filed. Um, occasionally there can be a trial or an arbitration hearing, but I usually represent, um, I, at one time I was on the insurance defense side where I defended those types of claims, but I've, for the last 23 plus years, I've been representing the, the claimants or the plaintiffs we can call them. And okay. a lot of it is um, working with the client, assessing the case, getting their medical bills, getting witnesses lined up. Um, a lot of it involves those aspects. There's some occasional legal issues that definitely come up and what parties to include in a possible suit. To, you know, see, so you have a lot of that analysis, but um, there's definitely an administrative side of it as well. So private practice, you jumped right into that, right? After Seattle U. I did. I did. I had a couple stick, a couple contract lawyer stints. I call it as like my my residency after law school. I had a couple, and they they weren't the most wonderful jobs, but I learned a lot at each job. And I made a decision at age 29, based on a confluence of circumstances, to go out on my own. And I kind of saw um some of the realities that working at a firm can be very good for some people, but for some people, Going on your own can give you a little more autonomy, can allow you to do things a little more your way. I mean, there's pros and cons. It's not always easy. So, uh, but I've been on my own now for over 23 years. Okay. So for people that don't have like say friends or family that can educate them on what to expect when you're in law school, was it three years? Three years of law school. That's correct. Okay. And then during that time, did you have chance to like intern and learn or were you strictly school? You know, that that I'll tell you about law school. Law school is heavily theoretical. It's very academic. You're learning a lot of policy. A lot of the law professors, some have practice experience, but a lot of them kind of look at law more from a theoretical. It's almost like a PhD program in some ways. They're into the doctrine and the policy behind it. Um, so law school, you're not, I took a couple clinical classes. Um, I did do an, an internship in law school at one firm. I did an externship, they called it one summer in the King County Prosecutor's Office. But most of law school is more classroom oriented. It's more learning case law and, and policies. And it has much more of an appellate law angle to it. You're, 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 you're reading a lot of these sort of esoteric cases and Supreme Court cases. And it's interesting but it doesn't necessarily apply to what a lot of lawyers are doing daily. So if someone's like wanting to go to law school, they're dead set on it. Are they going to be able to, let's say they have a family or they have to work to pay the bills. Is it going to be like college? Is it during the working hours or do you have to go to night school for law school? Like what kind of flexibility and freedom should one expect if they go down this road? Well, a lot of law schools, I think there's about 200 ABA approved law schools. There's also some non-American Bar Association approved law schools. California has a lot of those, about 200 ABA approved law schools. Some of those schools, including Seattle U Law School, offer a part-time program. So there are attorneys that can uh, work and, and go to law school part-time. Uh, but most law school students, especially the first two years, they are not working. They are full-time law students, especially that first year. And the second year is a lot of work too. Um, so, but there are options, part-time options for, for people. Um, but not every law school, I believe, has a part-time program, but I haven't followed it extremely closely in recent years. Okay, so that's good to know. I mean, it's, in, you know, for some, it, it's a full-on commitment early on, especially since you may not want to fall behind, right? Um, so let's fast forward a little bit. Okay, so you get into private practice and you made the decision to do that. 
And, you know, you and I are close to age, so we have some years behind us, but walk us through like what it's like, you know, I mean, it's, it's gotta be kind of similar to just starting a business, you know, um, where you're wearing all these hats in terms of marketing yourself, paying the bills, getting your license, all the admin, uh, walk us through the first couple of years on what it's like to run your own practice in the world of law. Oh yeah. It's, that's very true, Dirk. It, it's a lot of, it does have a marketing aspect. It has a, a follow through aspect to it, administrative aspect, technology aspect. Um, yeah, I can have days where I'm, I'm writing legal memorandums and I'm, 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 I'm practicing law. I also have days where I'm definitely trying to run the business as well. So um, it has it has all those aspects to it. But, you know, technology has changed a lot, especially the last couple of years, where it's pretty incredible how much you can practice law from your cell phone on a laptop. You can do your a lot of legal research on your laptop now. So to practice law these days, you don't really need that much. Um, you don't need the same, I guess we can call it infrastructure, as say some other fields. Like, I mean, you can't practice medicine you know, from only a cell phone or a laptop, you know? So um, I, yep. I guess if you're a psychiatrist, maybe you could to some extent, but, but a lot of fields, you, you, you have to have other, um, um, I guess, pieces of technology, but law, it can be pretty minimal of what you need these days. Yeah, no, you're right. So, you know, you were joking about it, but you talked about ADD, right? And I think that's common. All these different things you had to kind of be, I want to say an expert, but you had to be proficient in, with ADD, was it hard? Like, like, I can't imagine like reading law. Like I have a hard time with Ikea when I have to put together a piece of furniture. Like I think I have it, but like with ADD and trying to focus on the legal verbiage and the devils in the details, how did that, I mean, was that a struggle? You know, that's a good question. Or it's interesting you mentioned like, that, that's something that is hard for me. Like, like putting together a, a piece of furniture, that's a skill set I don't have. I wish I had those great handy skills. That's something that's a little trickier for me. You know, Jerk, you, 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 sometimes I need more time to get certain things done. Um, but I, I can generally pick up on, on the case law. Um, if I were say an architect or another field, it'd probably be a lot harder. Cause I think a lot of people have some dyslexic dyslexia and ADD symptoms, they can stand out more in some areas and have deficiencies in other areas. So I, I make it work. I make it work. It's one thing about being on my own I like is that I can kind of go at my own pace to get some of these things done. Um, and something I want to share, Dirk, too, uh, about the practice a lot, and this can apply to the business world as well. In the business world, you don't have to be a Fortune 400 person to have a good business career. In the law, you can still have a good career, even if you're not a partner at a prominent international firm, or you're not um, a Dershowitz or a Darrow or a Jerry Spence or a Johnny Cochran. You can still carve out a good career, and I think that gets forgotten. You know, there's we hear that we hear that term, "keep up with the Joneses." You know, just that the kind of the American neighbors that compete. I, there's a lot of that in, in, in lots of other fields as well, but I think people can come to some peace. And come to reality. And again, I'm not something for mediocrity. I'm not saying people shouldn't be ambitious, but I think you can have a good career in a lot of other fields and maybe not be um, the Michael Jordan of it. I get it. I mean, that's kind of like the genius zone. Someone thought, oh, God, Dirk, I'm not a genius. Well, I don't want to come on. Like, I'm not, this isn't about geniuses that I'm interviewing. It's about being in your flow and like gravitating towards what, you know, you were born in this world. You know, I always say like, Paul, when you're younger, I remember looking back and we'll get into this with you a little bit, maybe some signs, but like you had a Saturday or a Sunday or whatever, and eight hours felt like 20 minutes or 30 minutes. You know, what were those things that just kind of took you away um, where you're super present and you really enjoyed it? And I think that's, you know, when I'm interviewing people, I'm certainly not interviewing people who, who hate their job. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm interviewing people who, who are in their flow and I know you are as well, uh, in terms of, I know you are in your flow. Let's talk about what makes like, I mean, I, I know you're a humble guy, but let's talk a little bit about what makes you good at what you do as like, why, why you versus the guy next door who's advertising for the same exact type of law. What is it about Paul that kind of differentiates yourself from the pack? Well, I'm not the only attorney who 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 has these these skills, uh, but I care a lot about people. I care a lot about my clients, and I I work very hard. If I could 
I'm not trying to promote myself, but there's there's some things some other lawyers, eh, we don't have to focus on that. But for example, I've been spending months and months on this one case. It's a post-settlement issue. I won't bore you, Dirk, with the with the legal esoteric part of it, but it's an insurance reimbursement issue. And I'm trying to basically save my guy when it comes down to it, I don't know, five or six grand. And I'm putting in a heck of a lot of time to, to do that, but I feel it's the right thing to do. So there's things like that where I think I I, I care and I work hard. And I can also sometimes um, come up with an angle that maybe another lawyer hadn't quite thought of. Doesn't mean it's necessarily going to be the most successful angle, but I'm a pretty good brainstormer at thinking through different options and cases. So, uh, yeah, creative. So, You're creative, probably. I have a creative side. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm not saying that it's always catapulted into amazing results in every single case. But yeah, yeah. no, I, I can come up with some ideas. So. Yeah, legally creative is what I mean. So not like out of the bounds creative. So what about Try like, what about, yeah, what about some of the things that like, you're a smart guy and you knew what you're getting into. You had family that was in this world, this industry. What are some things that have surprised you over the years? You're like, good and bad. I mean, like things like, whoa, did not see this coming. And if I had known, like, like I struggle sometimes in my career, um, you know, it's, you know, not to get into what I do, but like, there are some core things about what I do that I wish somebody would have articulated to me before I went down this road. I don't know if it would have changed, but it would have been nice to be aware of. What are some things you can say, uh, maybe we start with the, the negative or the, the cautionary things that you can tell somebody right now that's watching that is gung-ho, wants to be a lawyer, they want to get in your exact kind of law, and they want to be in private practice. What do they need to know? Dirk, here's what has surprised me a bit. If I can think of one thing right now, if I had more time, I could I could think of some other things. One thing that surprised me a bit, and I have good relationships with most of my clients. Overall, I have probably over 90% good ties. I'm not saying they're all my best friends, but decent ties. I check in on some of my former clients. They check in on me. Um, so I, I, I have a pretty good relationship with most of my clients. However, what has surprised me, not just about my practice, but some other practices is the the difficulty some attorneys can have connecting with clients and how adversarial the attorney client relationship can get in certain situations that part of it has surprised me and there's probably a, i don't know not to get too deep here maybe some socioeconomic reasons why that happens whatever but um i was talking to to a retired judge about this my godfather is almost 90 and he brought up some interesting points that in the 50s and 60s, people were kind of more trained to listen to their doctors and lawyers and more to maybe to be more obedient to advice they received. That, that's just surprised me a little bit that, that some people who retain you or are thinking about retaining you have a very adversarial view. They're all, some of them are almost looking for to want to file a bar complaint or looking for for trouble, if I can put it. That, that surprised me. It hasn't happened to me a lot. But and, and that's a lot of behind the scenes attorneys will talk about Jesus client. I'm trying to give him or her advice. And they just won't listen. They're just fighting me on this and that. So that that's one thing that has surprised me to some extent. Um, yeah, that's an interesting point. Um, never one I thought of. I get that too. Like there's a lot of people in my world that are all about the money and sales and put people in dangerous types of loans. And sometimes if it's a fresh, you know, referral, whatever there's kind of a dating phase uh, until they actually start getting to know me and trust me. But right. Right. Um, what about some of the, okay, so that's one. Is there anything else that you're like, Hey, I'm in the job. It's my career, but I hate this part of the job. I mean, just to get really blunt, is there anything yeah, you can yeah. think of? Um, sometimes what can drive me a little crazy is when I'm trying to work with an opposing party on something very, very basic, like a housekeeping matter that you just need to get resolved. For example, I got a case right now where I can't get this opposing lawyer to agree that his client has been served with a copy of the lawsuit. It's the most, if I can use the word, rudimentary, basic thing. Can you Will you agree your client's been served? And that's something that a lawyer needs to do to protect his client's case to make sure it's a you know it's a process procedural thing and things like that when you can't get a housekeeping thing agreed to uh, to steal a, a, a line from our president come on man you know what I mean it's 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 yeah there's just things like that where you're just like come on you know so 
You know, it okay, so when you're talking, I mean, this these podcasts, they kind of go different directions sure, and sure. it's not a script, but like you've got um, you know, I think I, I, I never want to assume, but I, I keep trying to get in the heads of the people watching this, trying to learn your your job and learn the career, is the skill set of just getting along with people, like you know, even realtors when you have a a buyer's agent and a listing agent, and they're all going back and forth. And some of the most successful agents I see are the ones who just, whether it's commercial real estate or residential, they just know how to work with other people, maybe competition, but that trait doesn't seem to be absent from success in your world. No, for sure. And, and you know, Jerk, and, and there's a Harvard researcher, I think a guy named Dan Goldman wrote a book on this back in the 90s, the EQ can be more important than IQ in the real work world. And when it comes to long-term success, yeah, I try to work with people the best I can. I'm not going to say I never get grouchy a little bit. I'm not going to say that I've, I've connected perfectly with everybody I've ever worked with, but yeah, I try to reach out and connect with people. And, and, you know, I do believe in that old motto, you know, treat people how you want to be treated, even if it's a, 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 a somewhat adversarial situation, just try to try to maintain civility and, um, Again, I'm I'm not going to say I've I've succeeded all the time in those situations, but I do try to keep in mind you're dealing with other human beings and have their own egos and their own interests, and you know a lot of it's just uh, relationships in, in a lot of ways. So, um, one of the things that I'm thinking about right now that you're you're kind of hitting on, well, you're not hitting on it, but this you're making me think about it. Okay, so I had a guest, I've had a couple guests uh, that have been really successful in the world of apparel and you know clothing. Um, mostly in the ski and snowboarding world. And it's really interesting. They started talking about like their experience with a smaller brand versus a larger brand, you know, in terms of like playing it safe or, you know, say, you know, it's all about numbers with the bigger brand and you don't have a lot of freedom to be really creative. You're just like playing it safe in, in the world of law. Like I would assume like somebody in your world in terms of private practice, the type of law you do versus working for a big firm, a partner, whatever, it can be night and day. And I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is there anything you can elaborate on for people? Because they, they might do really well in your, in your side of it and really bad on the other side, or is it just because you want to be in law doesn't mean that you can fit in in every type of law career. Uh, I mean, I think you know where I'm going on that. Oh, Is there any absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I, I would not be the best transactional attorney. You know, I have a, a friend of mine is a senior partner at Perkins Cooey now, great securities lawyer. That would probably not be my area. I I, I kind of think I kind of get the concept of litigation better. The, 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 the little irony, though, Dirk, of being a litigation lawyer is or being a trial lawyer is you want to litigate. But at the same time, most lawyers are trying to keep their, their clients out of the courtroom, too. So it's a little bit of a of an interesting uh, contradiction there in a way, but yeah, you know a lot, of, and it's not just all about the money. You, you know, of course, we all want to pay our bills. We all want to want to. All lawyers want to get personal injuries. Want to get lucrative cases. That goes without saying. But I'll tell you a quick story. Um, I had a case a couple of years ago, and this I, I want to share this maybe with some younger people that that law is not just all about dollars and cents. She was a, a disabled veteran, Iraq War combat veteran. And this woman had been in an abusive relationship. Uh, she was probably in her early 30s. I represented her a couple of years ago. Uh, Iraq War veteran, impressive young woman. I represent her in a personal injury case. And every issue got fought, liability, insurance coverage, damages. It was a dog bite case. And she got bit by this dog pretty good. Now, I was able to help her get, Dirk, a very modest settlement. Believe me, I did not become wealthy from this case. But it felt very, very good helping this woman get some of her bills paid, helping her get, you know, a recovery, nothing amazing, but something that that um, was fair and just. So that case is just one example where, Again, I did not become wealthy from that case by any means, but it felt good trying to help someone who was in a jam. And I thought she was a very deserving person too. So that uh, that brings up another thing I want to touch on in terms of I'll ask the question, we'll come back to it. But there's as far as like, okay, so then what is normal? How many cases a year, you know, do you do and how do you become wealthy? Like, I mean, I I I want to get in a little bit about not your comp uh, compensation, but just how lawyers make money and, you know, is a, a lawyer supposed to have 10 cases on 
you know, working in simultaneously. Um, we'll get back to that in a second. But the, the initial question was, then do you have any advice to somebody that's interested in law? And but as far as trying to figure out what slice of law they want to get into, whether it's big corporate law, real estate law, what you do, big company, private practice, like I don't think a 27, 28, 29 year old may have that wisdom. And if there's somebody that doesn't have friends or contacts or family they can lean on and they're just really struggling, like, what the hell am I going to do? I have no, I just want to be in law, but they need to probably be smart about the law they pursue. Any advice you can give to somebody about making sure they're going down the right road in law? Yeah, Dirk, that's a good question. I mean, I, I think in law school, students can take courses and see what courses kind of strike their interests. Uh, there's that route. I think when you're when you're in law school, you can do internships or externships. Um, I think a lot of it too, Dirk, is working with quality people, no matter what area of law you're in, find people that you're working with, whether you're on your own solo or whether you're at a firm that are quality people. And I think that can make a big difference, no matter what law you're in. But yeah, I think for, but back to your question, I think it's it's good to, for, for a prospective lawyer, to sample some different foods in the buffet, you know, try uh, maybe do some contract work at a, at a firm that's involved in business transactional. Maybe, maybe do some contract work at a criminal defense firm. There are ways of, um, with my buffet analogy to, to try to taste some different things and see what what uh, what interests you. No, I appreciate that. I think that's important. Um, getting back to like your day and you talked about you didn't get wealthy on one deal, but like, how does it work in private practice? Like, is it is it normal to have one case you're working on that lasts three weeks or 10 cases that vary between a week and seven months? Like, what's a typical workload for an attorney in your type of law? Well, you know, a lot of my cases are personal injury and some can get resolved within five or six months after the incident. Some can go on for years. It really depends. Um, so it depends what area of law you're in. Like criminal defense lawyers can get cases that generally can resolve maybe within the same year they get the case or even sooner. So it just depends there a lot. And then I know business transaction lawyers have like ongoing uh, clients that uh, like ongoing business clients. I mean, there's some lawyers only have one client, you know, some can be in-house counsel. So that's one thing about the law, back to my, I don't want to overdo this, but back to the yeah. fan analogy, there are lots of different ways of sampling it and doing it. So so, so like, uh, like for you, for what you do, like, would you have like in a given year, it, you might have a case that goes three years, four years, two years? Oh, for sure. I, I have cases that can go even longer than that. Um, a lot of these cases, like civil cases, a lawsuit's filed, there can be trial date extensions. You can also sometimes wait to file the suit a couple of years after you get the case, maybe negotiations fail, whatever. So some of these cases can go on for, for quite a while. I had a lawyer friend who passed, and Dick worked on that, this Dow Winders case, this, uh, this radiation case, I believe, in eastern Washington. I think that case may still be going on. It's one of those cases I think started in the eighties. I don't have all the all the details of it, but some of these cases go on a long time. So, so, so maybe I mean, gosh, five years, four years, three years. So, would you be able to work multiple cases simultaneously, or do you have to like jump in the you know and do one and just be all in on one? I'll tell you, Dirk. When you're in trial, you, you're focusing on that one case. It, you, when, when a lawyer is in trial, he or she is generally the, the practice is suspended in some ways. It's it's it it, it can be a very twenty four seven ordeal. But most of my cases, like today, I did a little work this morning on a couple of cases after this podcast and work on some more. Most of the time, I'm just juggling all these different cases, and the law can be very deadline driven, like a witness disclosure deadline or this deadline, um, and that goes back to the administrative part of it. It's, it's a very deadline driven field. And so when you yeah when you get sorry to interrupt but when you get no, a no. kit when there's an opportunity that presents itself you might have to weigh the fact that hey I've got three things like this now I can't they're all similar I can't bring on another one of these deals but I can do this one because it's totally different maybe it's not so time sensitive do you have to do that kind of juggling when deals are presented or is it is it more simple than that like nope I've got so five definitely some some juggling and. If if a case, if a good case comes in 
most lawyers are going to figure out a way to handle it, unless they're about to retire. And I can bring in contract lawyers. And what I do sometimes is I associate with other attorneys. Uh, one we know, Chris Davis, we've worked on some cases together over the years. So if I get a certain case that for one reason or another, it may be hard for me to do completely on my own, there's some excellent friends and colleagues I have that I can collaborate with and kind of create a law firm together on that one or two, on that one case. So I'm glad you brought Chris up. You know, I hear him a lot. He does a lot of advertising. And I think there's another guy here. I won't mention his name, but when it comes to advertising, like, is it just a preference? Like, this is how I want to market myself. Uh, like, I don't, I don't know how much advertising you do, but I, I hear Chris all the time on sports radio. What, when does it, what's the determinant of, you know, like in, even in lending, I have people that do advertising and I don't do a lot of that type of advertising, but like, why 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 does Chris do so much versus the other person? And maybe you can talk a little bit about how you're promoting yourself or you're advertising your services. What goes into that thinking in terms of how I'm going to um, get my name out there? You know, I've done some advertising over the years, Dirk, a little bit of radio here and there. A lot of it is, I, and I, I don't know all the internal reasons why Chris advertises, but he's been very successful. And, and he, a lot of it's, you know, budgetary reasons and and all sorts of reasons why lawyers choose to advertise. I will share some with you. We hear about the, the stereotype of the ambulance chasing lawyers and all that. And there, you know, and I'm not saying every plaintiff's personal injury lawyer is the most honorable person in the world, but one reason lawyers in my field tend to advertise more than say corporate attorneys is we're representing the masses we're representing housewives and mercer Island. we're representing um laborers in the central district or ballard or representing people from sumner or or shoreline or whatever so you're, you're you have when you have a personal injury practice you're going to be getting um it, it's a different business model where you usually don't have an ongoing like business client so I think that's one reason why you see criminal lawyers or family law lawyers or personal injury lawyers advertising more is the model sort of calls for hitting the masses and trying to bring in some new people. New clients. That's a really, really good point. Um, I mean, I didn't I never thought of it like that. Like it's I, I call it B2C business to consumer versus B2B business to business. But like I'm in a similar world because anybody that I bump into might be a client who owns real estate needs to build refi buy whatever um but if you're selling you know um blockchain technology you're probably selling to a, a definitive right. uh, channel so when you're thinking about getting into law it might be worth it to like you know you're a social guy you were in a were you lambda or fiji or lambda kai was my house yeah yeah lambda and like it's sometimes you know it's a popularity contest like the people with the most friends wins and that sounds cliche, but when you know a lot of people and they like you, meaning they respect you, um, because I'm sure there's some people that are real popular, but no one would ever do a loan with them or do, uh, you know, hire them as their lawyer. But like when you have a network of contacts, it might be worth considering on what type of law or career you fall into. Because if you don't know anybody and you're in my world or, you know, a, a job that you need to market yourself, you might be kind of screwed. You know what I mean? I mean, I, I talk about lending where you might have the best lender in the world move to Seattle. They don't know anybody. That might be a problem. So I would think it'd be wise to consider, are you a, a network person? Do you have contacts? And maybe do these contacts like you and respect you? You know, do they think of you as a trusted source? I don't know if you've ever thought about like your type of law, you got into it for those reasons, because if you don't know anybody, I would think your type of law might be an issue. You know, Dirk, that's an interesting point. I never thought of it that way, but I do know some very successful lawyers that are not the most extroverted people that are really, really talented at what they do. And there's actually some trial lawyers out there, Dirk, that in trial are incredible and amazing, but having conversations with them, they can be a little bit, maybe even aloof or maybe not as social. You know, like you can find like actors like that or, or, or professional athletes that on the field or on the screen, they're incredible, but they can be a lot more laid back or maybe less uh, personable in other settings. So uh, your question is one I never thought of, um, but I think there's some trade-offs. Um, I know some attorneys who are not very social that have excellent business uh, success. And I know some that are uh, quite social that maybe their business success hasn't been quite as good. So there's a lot of intangibles there. Um, 
but I never really thought of that's an interesting question you asked. No, I, I would assume like in any trade, you have the spectrum of super social to total introverts. I'm just kind of really talking about when you as an attorney are trying to go get business and market yourself, you, I would think maybe after time, you just develop a great reputation and the business comes. But initially, if you're pursuing what Paul is doing, you might want to think about, okay, day one, you come out of law school, you hang your, you know, you have your office and now what, who do you go talk to? Who do you go reach out to, to, um, you know, uh, talk about your services. And if you don't know anybody, it could be an issue. So just something to consider. Um, I've seen a lot of people struggle in my business who don't know anybody. And after a while, like there's just no, there's no group or network that they can leverage. Um, so we don't have a ton of time left, Paul, but I wanted to also touch on maybe one or two things you absolutely love about your job that, you know, I'm not trying to push people away from pursuing law. I think it's good for you to be realistic, but I also, you know, I'd like to see people talk about what they really enjoy. You know, Dirk, to answer that question, I like when I can help a client get a good result when they have a problem. I gave you that one story a few minutes ago, that injured Iraq war female veteran. She was stuck in a situation. I felt very good. I was able to help her get this issue resolved. Um, so that's the, the part I find most satisfying is when I know that I helped a client get through an ordeal. Uh, that That's probably the most satisfying, satisfying thing. Yeah, no, that's good. I mean, impact, meaning, I think a lot of these things, you know, again, I don't want to assume, but when you're younger and you're coming out of school and you have debt and you're, you just want to get a job, get your own place, get a car, maybe you have a family, you're thinking probably different, but I think it's important to take inventory of like, are you someone that like, I bet you made impacts and there was meaning in your life before you even were thinking of law school. So I think it's important to kind of think about your career and is it going to give you those types of benefits, those types of um, experiences? Like, right. you know, for me, um, you know, this podcast is, is a way that I feel like I can give back. I really want to help people make better decisions about their life work. And you and I both know how much time people spend in their careers. So if you're no in a career you hate, that's kind of a sad thing in my opinion. Um, okay. So a couple of things you, you, I know you work hard. I know there's a lot of hours, but you know, one of the things I've admired about you is just this podcast. And, and I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, and I think it's good for people to see Paul and listen to this because not only is he uh, very dedicated and successful in the world of law. But, you know, he's also carved out this really cool, and I don't want to call it a hobby because it might be more than that, but a podcaster, and you've been doing this way longer than me, and you've had very, very impressive uh, guests. Like, I, I watched some of them, and I'm like, man, how did you get that guy or that gal on? And uh, I'm impressed. So talk to us a little bit about where that came from. Was that a love of sports, uh, or was that just, I don't know, what is it about uh, sports and podcasting that, that uh, you know, why, why did this come up? Dirk, I appreciate your kind words. I'll tell you how the thing kind of got going. And um, it's been an interesting experience. I'm, as I told you off the air, right now it's on hold. I plan on getting it back up. There's a few internal reasons why it's been on hold, but I'm in, in the process of hopefully having to show up in the near future. Um, here, here's the story. So back in the 2007, 2006 era, um, I got connected to the Save Our Sonics organization and another lawyer, another friend of mine, Aaron Wolf, we both went to a couple of their meetings and suddenly all these legal issues were coming up. And so what happened is through Save Our Sonics, I was getting called by some local media organizations to comment on some of the legalities surrounding the relocation battle, the contracts issue, some of those issues surrounding the Sonics relocation battle. So I was doing some news on KGR and 710 and some of the local uh, news stations. So what happened, Dirk, I never even thought I would do a podcast. I never thought I would do anything where I would doing what you're doing now, being a show host. But a friend of mine named Tony Benton was at Clear Channel for many years, and he was a, a KGR person. He had a show there. And so Tony started a station called Rainier Avenue Radio, and he approached me about hosting a show. And I thirst, I thought he was joking. I mean, the first two or three times I thought, because Tony's sort of a joke around guy, I wasn't even... I, I didn't even take it seriously. I, I literally kind of laughed at him. But he approached like the third time because I want you to host a sports show. 
at, at the new station I'm starting. So that started in 2017, and I've kept it tied to Rainier Avenue Radio. I, I've kind of got off my own with the podcast, but I still have, have sent them my uh, shows and have kept a, a relationship with them. That's kind of how it started. I got involved in something um, that was law-related, but not completely related to law, and it kind of evolved into something else. I think there's a little kind of life lesson there that you can get involved in a sailing club or get involved in a in a um, ski club, or there's all sorts of things that a lawyer or another person can do that can maybe add to some more experiences. And I would call, by the way, Dirk, my start, my podcast is a startup. I call it a startup hobby. So um, that's right. why I define it. What's the name of it again? It's called Sports Untold. Cool. And then so your initial hook into it was more from a legality perspective, not like I'm a diehard sports guy. Well, I'm a sports fan, but I guess my my the way my show got launched has a story to it where I got involved in Saber Sonics and I was asked by some local networks to comment on some of the the legalities. And then it just kind of turned into hosting a sports show. But I'm I'm a fan, but I, I like sports jerk. At the same time, I, I'm not gonna say I read every box score every day, though. Yes. Yeah, I will tell you, I worked, I had an intern internship with the Sonics, and then I uh fortunate my mom married a guy who had courtside. And I used to, the greatest thing is his kids were at Wazoo when I was coming out of college. So they couldn't go, which meant I could go. And there was probably one couple seasons. I went to 25 games, 30 games, and I had four seats. So I'd take my buddies and I, you know, I was the poorest guy in the first 20 rows for sure. But I tell you, it was the one of the greatest experiences. Like I would call people and they would know, you know, oh, Dirk's probably got a, and it was like talking to the players, um, the experience of being up close like that. So I was very passionate about the Sonics. And so, you know, I remember those interviews from Clay Bennett and talked about he's doing everything he can to keep him here. And I knew in the back of my head, like that was not, um, I didn't believe him. Uh, and so I still hope that we can get him back because, uh, you know, I don't even follow the NBA anymore just because I have no, team and i think that would change if we got somebody back yeah i, I think we're probably gonna team back at some point uh we'll have to see what happens there but i i really enjoy i remember seeing you at sonics games years ago too and i and uh, i did it i worked at the sonics one time as well years ago but i remember i remember you, we, i think we were there at the same time but right. uh yeah um they're there i think seattle is excited with the kraken right now and the mariners and the huskies and you know we have almost every major sports team right now in seattle except for the nba so i know it is a, it's a great city i think the problem not the problem but the reality of seattle is there's so many great things to do i mean in terms of outdoors so you know you get certain cities that are die hard on their sports teams because there's not a lot going on right and i think we have so many things to offer which can be challenging but i'm pretty darn sure that if we brought back uh, an NBA team, it would get a lot of love. Um, so before we wrap this up, I always ask a couple questions to each guest, uh, the same ones. One of them is just like, if you could go back in time, rewind this whole thing, coming out of Seattle U and was it 97 or close to, would you do anything different? I mean, would you, would you change the type of law that you pursued? Would you not get into private practice or would you do it all again the same way? Gosh, Dirk, what a question. You asked really good questions. What a question. Um, there's a couple, there's a couple things I think I would have pursued differently looking back. I, I look back at some some jobs and how I pursued them. Um I I probably could have handled myself better in some ways in how I went about uh trying to obtain certain positions. I also wonder sometimes, Dirk. What if I went back to D.C. for a year or two and maybe tried to work as a legislative aide for, for a member of Congress? I sometimes wonder if my career could have taken some different turns and I did something like that. Um, but, yeah, there's a couple that there, there, there were frankly there were frankly one or two jobs that I took that probably were not the best fit. And I sort of knew going in they weren't the best fit, but I, I just was eager to, to have a job. So looking back, there's probably a job or two I shouldn't have taken. Um but that's a good question. I, I and sometimes I wonder. I'm sure we all have these things in life where you chose to go down this door. What if you went to that other door two feet away? What would have happened? So I sometimes wonder if maybe earlier in my career, if maybe I could have tried going a, a different route on a couple things. 
Yeah, but I mean, it's, it's, it's speculative though, Dirk, because you don't know what happened if I if I went another route though. You know what I mean? So no, I, it's true. I mean, it's a. I ask the question because sometimes someone has a real interesting answer, and but most of the time it's, you know, it's predictable. Like you know, I think I would have done it pretty similar. I think too for younger people that are struggling, my advice and you can jump in Paul is, is to lower the bar a little bit because sometimes it's like dating. I think dating is so, um, it's a great analogy or a metaphor for life. It's sometimes you just got to have some jobs that you don't like because it teaches you what you do like. Um, and you know, so there's, you know, there's no wrong, wrong, uh, route to go. I mean, life is about, you know, experiences and, and learning and, uh, but, taking action. This is the dance. This is the dance that I have a hard time with my podcast is action is crucial. Like just get out there. But before you get out there, my hope is just to spend a little time trying to really think about what you would enjoy versus just jumping into something for the wrong reason. Like, because your dad or your mom wants you to be a doctor, um, take inventory of who you are. Cause you're, you're different than anybody else in this world. We are. And I think when you align your career with your genuine interests and passions, I think good things can happen. My last question is if you could do anything, and I know this is kind of like a, a dream question, but let's just say, you can't be in the world of law. Let's just say it's not an option. Is there a dream job that you have like that you think, you know, you laugh about because there's no way it would ever happen. But if you could do anything, do you have a job or would it be in your current role? Well, first of all, I will say it's about dating, which applies to other things in life. It's not for the thin skin, that's for sure. But but sure. but um what would I do? You know, uh if I could theoretically host a a a podcast that could you know completely pay for everything where i could hit on just subject matters every day that really fascinate me sports or even things outside of sports that would be a lot of fun but the reality is um the reality is there's not a whole lot of of people that have those kind of positions where they're making you know they can really make big money doing, um, you know, hosting a show or something like that. But one thing I do like about podcasts is I love it how you and I and so many others can have our own shows now. You don't have to be a radio host at a major network to be able to host a show. I like it that there's something, I guess I'll use the word egalitarian about it, that that you can be a regular person and, and get a show together. And so, yeah. Um, I think that's really cool in a lot of ways. But but back to your question. Yeah, it, it would, if I was doing something else, I mean, I always liked journalism. Uh, I took a journalism class from Mr. Jacobson at Roosevelt. It was very inspiring. Um, but um, yeah, see, see where life goes. Um, I, I don't love everything about the practice of law, but you kind of get routine and have some idea of how to handle things. So I don't want to purport that I love everything about it by any means. But, um, you know, I, I think I'll be at it, though, for for at least some number more years. So. Yeah, I mean, that's a good point. You don't have to be in love with your job. Uh, my my hope is like, my dad's old, his voice is like, that's what it's work. It's not supposed to be fun, son. It's go to work, you know, roll up your sleeves and all. But, but I do believe that your career can be something different. I think if you choose and put yourself in an environment that leverages your uniqueness, what's innate, I think you'll like, I see people in my industry and other industries that separate themselves from the pack. And it's not because they're smarter, work harder, whatever. They just really like what they're doing. And when you're running a race, you want to win. It's very different feeling than running a race that you don't want to win. Um, if that makes any sense. And so my encouragement, and I think Paul mirrored this a little bit as well is, you know, you, you're not going to love everything about your job, but you know, don't get into a job for the wrong reasons and, and really try to, um, I, I, I should say, identify what is unique about yourself and, and realize, I mean, if you look at the hours that you spend in your career over your lifespan, it's a lot. It's probably more yeah. than anything. And it's, um, you know, life's short and I'm a big fan of living it 
and enjoying it. Uh, before I end, is there anything on the tip of your tongue that, you know, this is all about advice and helping people make better decisions. Is there anything you feel compelled to say to the audience before we end this? Yeah, no, Dirk, just as sort of alluding to what you mentioned a minute ago, um, be yourself and, and, and like you, what you are talking about, there's no perfect job. I think that's something that people forget. And also, I'm not recommending that people be oddballs, but don't be afraid to be a little different. Don't be afraid to be a little unique. It's okay to, to try maybe some different approaches and, and you can you can be a little different in how you go about something. And and the other thing I want to mention when I mentioned earlier, if I can repeat it again, is again, I'm not I'm not advocating mediocrity, but don't feel that you have to be um the most fanciest attorney in America or even in your in your zip code for that matter. You can have a good career and and represent people well and you don't have to be um the wealthiest or the most prominent to have a good career i love that advice uh and i don't know if i butchered it i want to make sure i heard it right but like be yourself be a little goofy be an oddball be different be unique whatever i mean you will attract your tribe your people um truth is the best script i have a coach that i've had that i'm actually doing a podcast with later today that says truth is the best script <clears throat> and i see people who try to be someone else or see someone really success, successful and they try to be that person. But I think what Paul's saying is be yourself, even if it's, you know, unique or odd or whatever, because you'll attract the right kind of clients, people, partners, whatever. Um, is that kind of along the lines yeah, or did be I be yourself within reason? I mean, I mean, I, I, I'm not recommending someone to be completely crazy, yeah. but be, you know, don't be afraid to try <laughs> some different things. And, Again, we have such like the keeping up with the Joneses mentality. I see it with college admissions. I don't have any kids of my own, but I see like my niece going through the college admissions uh, situation right now. And and there's so many good college options out there. I mean, I, so many people can have great careers. You don't have to go to Harvard or Yale to have a great career. And I I I, I think that if I can use that as an analogy too, that you, there's so many different ways of having success and having happiness. And I don't think one has to follow the 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 um, the exact script that someone else thinks they should follow. So <laughs> that's awesome advice. My daughter is a senior and I can relate to the whole college thing uh, big time. Um, as far as like, I mean, there's some, some kids out there that have 15, 20 applications and it's, um, it's kind of boggles my mind. Cause I think when I went through it, I was thinking about playing football in college and I had some head injuries. And so that kind of ended that for me. Um, I was going to go to some smaller schools and play. And then when that happened, I just kind of UW was right there in my backyard. And I'm really glad I made that decision. Okay. So one question, I forgot one more. Sure, go ahead. Cause I, I find this really interesting and I'm going to start asking this question with all my guests is I know there's different levels of, you know, people are super alarmist, but AI, you know, chat GBT four or whatever, like the future of AI in, in your career as far as just you know information i mean is that something that's on your radar uh i know you you know we're not gonna have robots in trial but as far as the research the time to gather information do you do you ever think about ai and how it relates to law gosh jerk i i i hadn't really thought of it in the context of, of practicing law but you wonder if we're going to get to some point where a client could hire maybe a robot to get you know, to represent them. I mean, it, it sounds at least now theoretically possible. Even a couple of years ago, it sounded like no way. Um, my hunch though tells me that even with advanced technology and all this AI stuff and this robotic stuff, I, I think there's still going to be a presence for, for real life um, human lawyers. I think there's still going to be a role for attorneys. Um, but Maybe we'll talk a decade from now, Dirk, and I'll have to reverse what I just said. So. I think you're right. I'm just, I think where it's going to replace jobs is in the data gathering, the speed at to which it can get information. So my assumption about lawyers is they do a lot of research, gathering data. And my guess is AI might be able to help facilitate or expedite um, that process. But I don't know. It's a fascinating topic for me. And I'm a, I'm totally a beginner. Um, on it, but it's got me really thinking about like, hell, I'm doing a podcast on careers and I'm wondering how many of these careers are going to be around in 20, 30 years based on AI, but we'll see what happens. Um, 
anyway, I really appreciate it, Paul. You were great. I think you threw out a lot of really good information. You know, you, I mean, it's the example is I know what lawyers, you know, I know about law, but like you were talking about things that I never thought of. And that's really the goal here is to open up people's eyes to what they can expect if they pursue this uh, career. So thank you so much. I appreciate your time. Dirk, I really enjoyed it and good luck and continual success your podcast. I like the theme of your podcast, what you're doing, and we'll be in touch. Thanks, buddy. You too. Thank you.